North Node. So I started hosting these entertaining things and I did like probably 13 to 15 of these, you know, Thanksgiving for rookies and the Mother's Day brunch and all of this like easy kind of thing. And it started to do really well. And I I just realized like there's a whole generation of people that do not know this information of how to throw a party and the timing and what goes with what. Like you're not going to serve sangria with Asian peanut noodles. Hi, I'm Paige Nolan. Welcome to I'll Meet You There, a place where heart-centered conversations are everything. Living what matters is the truest thing, and sharing the journey is the best. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to I'll Meet You There. Today, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Beth Limanak. Beth is a master entertainer and wonderful chef. She runs a YouTube channel entitled Entertaining with Beth that has over 600,000 dedicated followers. Beth produces tons of wonderful, relatable, and instructional content, all pertaining to cooking and entertaining. Beth and I met years ago when I first moved to Los Angeles through our mutual friend, Lori. And my first meaningful memory of time with Beth was when I attended a Valentine's Day dinner party that Beth and Lori hosted together at Lori's house. And it was all the things you'll hear Beth talk about today. It was a lovely setting, lots of candlelight, intentionally romantic vibe, delicious food, thoughtful touches like place settings, and parting gifts for the guests. Beth was already a gifted entertainer, and that was 20 years ago. Beth and I have loosely tracked each other's lives, but it was only when I ran into her this August, our kids now attend the same middle school, that I came to fully understand how she's built her business and designed her life around her passions. That's when I knew I wanted to meet Beth here with you and learn more about her experiences and how she made her way to living a meaningful life at the intersection of what she describes as passion, purpose, and service. We move around in this conversation. We start in the kitchen, and you'll hear Beth's early family experiences and the big role her father has played in her career path. And then she talks about marrying her husband, Philippe, and how she came to learn the French language and embrace that culture. And we also talk a lot about how she built her business, the decisions she's made all within the context of her family life and being a mom to her two daughters. At the end, Beth shares some tips on entertaining that I know you'll find useful. And then she leaves us with some words of encouragement that I found to be inspiring. I am definitely inspired by Beth. I love her sincerity and the integrity she brings to her whole life. And I have to admit, I'm also quite in awe of her talents. And I think you will be too. Enjoy this conversation with Beth Limanak. I really like to start in the kitchen. That's where I want to start with you is back in the kitchen. And can you tell us a little bit about your first memories of the kitchen growing up? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So my dad loved to cook. So he was always in the kitchen. Mom, not so much, but dad was always cooking on the weekends. And so some of my earliest memories are in the kitchen with my sister and my dad making pizzas or making Christmas cookies. Or really anything that would make a huge mess. (laughs) Now that I think about it, I'm like, why was he having us do that? Um, But like those were just He didn't mind a mess. I guess he didn't mind. Oh, that's great. Well, no, because my mom was probably the one cleaning it up. exactly. Yeah, so he didn't care probably. Did he grow up cooking as well? He did. So he was one of five kids. Um, He was the youngest Mm -hmm. of a Italian-American family. So my grandmother cooked all the time. Like everything was from scratch. They cooked all the time. 
Although he tells me that the, my grandmother used to push everybody out of the kitchen. Yeah. And so my aunts, I grew up not knowing how to cook because the mom was like, I mean, can you imagine a family of five? Like she didn't want all these kids underfoot. And then it was years later that she actually learned how to cook. But I think he just always loved food. Yeah. And then as he, I guess, was a bachelor and then married my mom, like he just always loved to cook. I think it was a way he relaxed. Yeah. And because he's so creative, like it was his another creative outlet. Yeah. Did you yeah. guys grow up eating Italian yeah. food? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like the, the simple stuff, the Parmesan, you know, the eggplant Parmesan, the chicken Parmesan, spaghetti, pasta dishes, pizzas. Was he your first teacher? Yeah. Did he teach you how to cook? Or was it more you absorbed the environment around you? It's absorbing. Yeah. Dad isn't really a teacher yeah. in the funny sense of the world. Like, I think I'm, I love the teaching part of what I do. Like, I think I'm a natural teacher. I just love that part of it. But dad has always been just like, throw yourself in there and this is just do it by watching or you could do it without telling me. And he, we always have this joke because he's like, you're always looking for like tab A goes into tab B. He's like, I'm not going to tell you that. Yeah. Just, just go on out there and figure it out. Yeah. I don't think he has the patience for the teaching yeah. part of it. Well, and then in that, there's an openness to whatever comes out. I think there's an openness to the, yes. the outcome, which is really beautiful to have had that influence. No, that's true. I think my first job when I was 16, well, it was really, I was 15 and I went to this local bakery that I loved and it was right around Thanksgiving time and they needed people to make pies. They were like desperate. Yeah. So I got a job before I was 16 and they were just like, don't tell anybody. I love it. So, and I started making pies. Yeah. And I think I really learned a lot about cooking, working in that bakery, the pies, the breads, the cakes, the cookies, like all of that as far as baking. And then really with my husband's family, yeah. because nobody speaks a word of English. And the yeah. only way you could really connect was in the kitchen because it's a simple way to spend time together, but you're not having to use a lot of big vocabulary. Yes. It's here, peel this for me or chop this yeah. or, you know, it just was sort of a fun way to connect with well, people. Well, I think that's so you know? true, too, if you've ever had a family gathering where there's different age groups and everybody's not totally connected yet. You play a game, you know, it's, so cooking is like yes. that, where it's like an experience that's... Yes transcends language or, you know, reference points for all the different age groups. Yes. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like true. way more loose and lighthearted and bonded. Yeah. So when do you no, remember so cooking true. for yourself as a young woman, like in college or after college in your 20s? Were you, yeah. connect, were you already connected to it then? I was. When I, when I went off to college, I had to earn my own spending money. So I always worked in restaurants because I like to be around food. So... I just started to kind of cook, I think, from that. And yeah, in college and having roommates and wanting to sort of cre recreate the Sunday night dinners that I used to have as a kid at home. Like that was just a really special ritual um, and wanting to do that with my roommates. And, you know, it was simple yeah. stuff, but we were still cooking. Yeah. And the fact that on a Sunday night, if you can get your roommates together and cook something delicious for them, yeah. who wouldn't want to do that? Sunday night. Right. When you're used to eating Apple Jacks or whatever we all, a bowl of rice yeah, exactly. in college. And I think it's a good way to re hit reset. Yeah. And I notice I do the same thing for my own kids. It's just a good way to sort of start the week to get everybody together. But I think it wasn't until I really moved in with my sister, our first sort of apartment mm -hmm. that we were in our young 20s, that we would host these little cocktail parties or dinner parties. Again, simple stuff. But because we'd always grown up with family that had entertained... Yeah. Because my dad was one of five and my mom was one of five. So this, these were like huge yeah. family gatherings. And I just thought everybody's family did that. Like, I think that's sort of funny when you grow up and then you go out in the world and you're like, oh, 
people aren't doing these big holidays or you spend a holiday at someone else's house and you're like, oh, everybody's like bringing the store-bought stuff. Like, okay, all right, that's how they do it. But like at our house, it was everything was from scratch. And I do that too with my holidays. And I sort of turned to my girls this Thanksgiving because I saw them looking at me and I'm running around the kitchen. I was like, you know what? You don't need to recreate this. Like when you grow up and you're like, want to have Thanksgiving, don't feel the pressure to do this because this is like at a different level. Like people have to really be obsessed with food and cooking and the cleaning to do everything from scratch. It's something that I love, but I don't expect them to grow up and love it as much as I do because it's a total Yeah, and you're giving them a reference point. Not everybody's family is like this. Yes, right. Well, I had a similar experience growing up from New Orleans. I remember getting to, I went to college in Nashville, and I remember getting there around February, freshman year. I'm like, oh, expecting to have a week off for Mardi Gras. You know, like just because there's so much culture in New Orleans and there's so much about that city that you don't realize is so unique. And, you know, of course, there's no Mardi Gras in Nashville, but it's still like my body was used to having a couple of breaks. Like you have a week off in February and you have a week off around Easter for spring break. So, yes, I remember having that wake up call. Did you do a little Mardi Gras? Oh, we love doing Mardi Gras. And the whole city is revolving around food. So we would have red beans and rice on Monday, which is a very classic, you know, day to a very traditional time to have red beans and rices on a Monday in New Orleans. Mm. And then I think just the city itself, there's so much value and emphasis around gathering, you know, and festivity and party and drinking and food and where are you going to eat and restaurants. Mm. So I didn't even realize that that was unique. You know, food is a a part of everybody's culture. It's a part of everybody's life. But I think when you're from the specific kind of background, whether it's New Orleans, whether it's the French culture, whether it's Italian yeah. culture, you know, it's it adds all, its own flavor. So I, I know that mm-hmm. experience of thinking, oh, everybody's family isn't like this. And that being a little surprising. <laughs> so you, you move in with your sister in your 20s. And I know you started getting involved in production right away in your 20s. And the, the, this is around yes. the time I think your dad, right, invited you to... Tell us about that first job experience and traveling with him. Yes. So he had just signed, he's an interior designer and had just sold one of the first shows to HGTV. So this was in the early 90s and I didn't even know what it was. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, to be honest. But he said, look, I just got the show. I need a set decorator. You should come work for me. I was like, dad, I don't even know the first thing about that. It was typical dad. Like, no, it's fine. You can do it. I'm like, well, what if I don't, you know, I remember having like a total meltdown the night before I was supposed to be on the set, like leading a group of 10 interns. I was like, I don't even know what I'm doing. He's like, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. And I was like, okay. And yeah, he was right. I figured it out. And then shortly after that, he got another show, which involved traveling. Mm -hmm. So it was a show called The World of Design. And over the course of probably two to three years, we went to 16 different countries. And it was an amazing, yeah, it was an amazing way to, to see the world on someone else's dime for one yeah. thing. <laughs> and when you have a job that actually takes you there, it's amazing. And because my dad and I love food and we love to eat, after the show wrapped for the day and we were done shooting, we would want to find out, like, what are the best restaurants yeah. in town? Like, we're in Berlin. Where should we go to eat? Or we're in the French Riviera. Like, where should we go have the bouillabaisse? Like, and I think that that really exposed me to all different types of cuisine and all types of different people and food. And that's, I think, what really ignited the fire of food yes. with me. And what was happening at the same time as I had gotten married. And I think once you have someone to cook for, yeah. you're even more motivated to cook and create a home and create special meals. And of those 16 so, countries, yeah. 
do you have a preference? Did you already feel like you were preferring some cultures to other or some types of foods to other yeah. foods? I, I, well, I think culturally, I always am just gravitated to Europe, yeah. to, to France and to Italy. There's just so much there. And I think I, that's just the way I love to eat is that sort of Mediterranean type yeah. cuisine with pasta and some rich sauces thrown in from France. But like, I, I love that. But I think in traveling with my dad, one of the most memorable trips was the trip we took to Japan mm -hmm. um, because it was so foreign from Yes. And it was so interesting to go to the udon noodle houses and, you know, try what udon tasted yeah. like or to be in a, you know, restaurant where you're literally sitting on tatami mats and your feet are going like in a, you know, yeah. like a, like a well, you know, like you're, you're not sitting in chair, like, it just was such an amazing experience. And to experience that with my father, I think, was just such a wonderful yeah. opportunity to see, you know, who he was and what he thought was interesting, what I thought was interesting. We still talk about it to this day, how much oh, fun it was. Oh, that's beautiful. When you traveled to these yeah. countries or back then or even now, who do you ask for these recommendations? Like, who are the people to ask? Because yeah. I always just Google. I, I, I know. This is why I'm learning so much from you because I'm the exact opposite. I'm like, I'll just go to the, you know, the most well-reviewed place or the place that everybody else is going. I'm not very original. But that works too. I think when we did the show, we were interviewing all of these top designers. So yeah. anybody who had a sense of taste or style and lived in the city, like they would always know yeah. where to go eat. Like that was the easiest thing to do is to ask those people. But when I think like my husband and I are in France, we usually will ask people we know, or sometimes just even if you go into a great restaurant that you think is really great, ask them where they oh, like to great. go. Because sometimes you can find like more local places, like where, and just be specific, like where would you go for the best crepe or where would you go for the best pastry or the best bread? Because I think people are, especially in France, very opinionated yeah. of who's making the best baguette and they'll just tell you. And I think you have to start with a place that you that's already proven itself as either delicious or really quality bread, yeah. you know, ask that person where's the best cheese because they're yeah. going to know, you know. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Did you meet Philippe, your husband, who is French? Did you meet him in on one of those trips or you met him in America? No. The funny thing is I met him here yeah. in the in LA. He was doing a garden show. He designs and manufactures garden triage, mm -hmm. the French sort of architecture. And my dad, who's the designer, saw it and wanted to put it in a show house. And I remember thinking, oh, dad, yeah, this stuff looks really expensive. I don't think he's going to want to donate all this stuff for free. And my dad is like the original salesman. He's like, oh, yeah, no, he will. It'll be great. And so he came to the office at the time I was working with my dad. And he and he said, don't you want to meet the Frenchman? And I said, no, <laughs> I don't want to meet the Frenchman. I, like, it was my worst subject. Like, you go meet him. Did it's he want to introduce you for a potential romantic connection? Like, he was already thinking like that? Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I was single for a long time. Yeah. I was like my early 20s because I was traveling. Sure. I spent seven years traveling, working in the design center. Like I just wasn't meeting anybody. Yeah. And my dad is this sort of, you know, traditional Sicilian character. And he's always like, I like the way it was in the old days where the fathers picked the men. <laughs> I think it just needs to work that way. And we would joke and we're like, Dad, please. Yeah. And so the day that he met Philippe, he came running back into the office and he was like, you have got to meet oh, this I guy. It. I have met your husband. I'm like, Dad please. He's like, no, you've got to meet him. And I wouldn't go down there. I was like, no, I'm not enough with you with your matchmaking. So he brought him into the office. Yeah. And then when I met him, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's attractive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, he was so cute. So That's then I was like, what do you want me to do with this? Like, I just met this random stranger. I'm not going to, mm -hmm. you know. So my dad, like, I think it was like two weeks later, Easter was coming up. 
No, it was Thanksgiving okay. was coming up. And he said, I'm going to invite Philippe for Thanksgiving because he's all alone. He has nowhere to go. And I'm like, dad, he's French. He doesn't even celebrate Thanksgiving. Yeah. Like, it's not a big deal. He's fine. He's like, no, no, no. So finally, I talk him out of that. And then Easter comes around. He's like, well, I'm inviting him for Easter. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, dad. So I invited him for Easter and we obviously like hit it yeah. off and got along. And then, you know, we became friends. We did a lot of rollerblading dates and movie dates and stuff. And then, you know, within a few months, romance blossomed. And that's, that's it. it two began. kids later, <laughs> two daughters, two businesses. Right. Is Philippe's family in France? You mentioned earlier, like really sinking into that French culture. Tell us about learning about that culture from the perspective of family, choosing to, you know, a spouse of that culture. Does anybody speak English? Well, I... No. Yeah. (laughs) And this is the real karmic joke of it all, because my sister and I were in the same French class in high school. I don't know why why they put us in the same class, but they did. And we talked through the whole thing. And I remember the teacher being like, can't you guys talk at home? Like, why are you talking in my class? And it was just horrible. It was my worst subject. And I just remember thinking, what am I going to need this for? (laughs) Like, this is so, like, why am I being tortured, right? Cut to like years later and I could have really used it. And so we would go every other Christmas. That was the thing. We would go every other Christmas. And and we were married over there because I realized when he took me over to meet his family. So we'd been dating for like two years. And he says, okay, I really want you to meet my family. You have to come with me to France. I hadn't been to France since I, well, no, wait, I was with my dad, but I took like one trip when I was 16 Uh and then a trip with my dad in my early 20s. And I said, okay, all right. And he's like, they don't speak any English. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to try it. And it was the most like ridiculous thing. We stayed with them. So everything from where are the towels? Can I help with the dishes? Like, may I have a glass of water? Like it all had to be this really bad French. And I just realized if I am going to spend my life with this man, and at this point I knew that he was the one. I'm going to have to learn this language. Like, this is not going to be funny. Like, I cannot. Yeah, you can't wing like, it. Yeah. This is, like, you can't wing it. So we, I got a teacher and I did every Saturday private French classes oh, wow. for probably six years wow. or so. And in the middle of this, we decided to get married in France because I knew that our children, that we wanted to live in the States and so much of our history would be the United States. Yeah. And we really, as parents, wanted to make sure that our children felt at home in both yes. cultures. So I wanted part of our story, like a big part of our story to be in France so yeah. that they felt like there was an equal amount of like, oh, mom and dad's history in France and mom and dad's history yes. here. And we thought, oh, we'll get out of having like a small wedding because a lot of Americans are not going to come all the way to France. And we had like 60 yeah, Americans. They all got on the first <laughs> They were like, flight. we're coming. Yeah. <laughs> Destination wedding. So, so much for that. What do you think helps for somebody listening who is interested? Because I I know there's someone listening who's got to be interested in a new language. I think that's something that comes up a lot of times in our life. A lot of us have children at home who are taking foreign languages for credit in high school or college. What helped you to master a language? And are you glad that you're bilingual? Oh, yeah. 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 It was the best investment I've ever made in myself. Like, seriously. When I look back now, 20 years later, it's still not perfect. You know, I say it's enough to get in and out of trouble, you know, (laughs) but it's helped in so many ways. Like, I think my biggest piece of advice is take a class. You need to know how the language works because all languages work in a certain way. So like the six years that I spent, and I don't think it would take someone six years. It's just, I was only doing it on Saturdays, but going through all the verbs, going through all the verbs, how do they all conjugate? Like, I really needed all of that first. And then you reach a certain amount of proficiency and you're like, okay, and then it's time to go throw yourself in the wild. Yeah. You have to go to a situation where nobody speaks any English. 
So like if it's French, I would avoid Paris. I would avoid the south of France. I would go to like the middle of the country or I would go down to like Vendée where nobody is speaking any English because it's through that survival mechanism that you pull out words you didn't even know you knew. You you knew. Like you will, you, it's just so much better. And then you have to go back in the cave again and do the classes. Yeah. And then you have to go back in the wild. So you have to go back and forth like that and don't think you're going to speak right away. Because even babies, when they learn yeah. to, to talk, they're they're understanding everything for the first two years of their life. They don't actually right. It's all receptive. Speaking. Like yes. speaking's later. Yeah, it's all receptive. So like, just spend a lot of time listening, yeah. and don't listen to things like the television or the radio because you'll just get so frustrated. Like it's so fast, you'll just think I'm never going to learn this language. Just sit and listen to conversations yeah. like people talking, and that was the best for me because I was stuck at these dinner tables for sometimes six hours. Oh, these gosh. meals would go on. To the point where it would start at noon yeah. and then it would wrap up by six and then people would be putting away the last dishes and then it would be like, okay, let's start drinks yeah. for dinner now. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to go through this again. But I spent a lot of time with children and that would be yes. my other piece of advice. Like children are so forgiving. They're not judgy. Yeah. They just want to play with you and you don't care if you mispronounce things because they just think it's fun. And for the first couple of visits, I spent a lot of time with my nieces and nephews sitting around the table coloring. Mm. Because it was like, oh, let's draw a right. cat. Let's draw right. a tree. And it was like at my yeah. level. And it was perfect. <laughs> I studied in Florence my junior year, the fall semester of my junior year of college. And I was so determined to memorize the language. I approached it the exact opposite mm. of what you're describing. Because it's vulnerable, you know, to to really yes. see into a culture. I lived with an Italian family. So I would listen and we would have dinners together. But I was very, you know, I had the the Italian classes I was taking and I approached it more methodically. And I was standing at the bus stop. I remember this very vividly. And this man asks me what I now understand to be, how long have you been waiting for the bus? And I thought he had asked oh. me how long I had been in Florence. And so I gear oh, up and yeah. I'm like, I, <laughs> I spit back to him like a series of sentences that I had mastered. It was like, my name is Paige. I am a student. I am from America. (laughs) And he was just, I mean, I think he got to the point where in English, he was like, how long have you been here? And I'm like, oh, I've been standing here 10 minutes. (laughs) It was very American. And I think that it's very American. But I think it speaks to as we as we age and as an adult, we don't want to look foolish. Oh, yeah. We want to do things every way. Right. And like, if you're going to learn a language, you have to realize that you're going to be reduced to like a baby. Yeah. You're going to feel like an idiot. And like, if you're not okay feeling that way, you will not learn the language yeah. because you learn the most from making mistakes. I can't tell you like how many times I've made a bad mistake and been the butt of every joke and yeah. people laughing hysterically, but like, I'll never make that mistake yes. again. You know, I, now I know the word for boy is not the word for yes. girl. You know, like when I was learning this, the, the, the words were, I confused the words yeah. and like, I just think that that's so much a part yes. of it. Like you just have to feel vulnerable. And also, it's not all going to sound perfect. Right. Like start with just the subject and the verb. You don't need to do the past tense. You don't need yeah. to like you'll you'll speak like Tarzan, but people will know yeah. what you mean. And that gives you a lot of confidence. Yeah. And to know? keep it playful. And then you can work on perfecting yes. it. Yes. Sorry. You can keep it playful yeah. too. I think there's yeah. there's an intensity around learning being a beginner as an adult. Whatever yeah. the skill set mm-hmm. is, you know, whether it's language, yes. whether it's cooking, whether it's picking up a new sport, mm-hmm. it's very hard to keep it light, you know, and remember that everybody is, is learning. 
What can you tell us about the French culture? What do you appreciate about it? Where do you think we could benefit from being more French? Totally. My husband and I talk about this a lot because our dream has always been to retire in France. And I always laugh. I said, you've been here so long. He's been here about 30 years. And I said, I think that you will love that, but there will be things that you have taken for yes. granted about the United States that you will not love. So like ice, one of the things ice? that I think, well, yes, cute <laughs> ice. But I think the thing, well, okay, I think the thing that's great about France is that they're, the French are very direct. You always know mm -hmm. where you stand. Like Americans have a people-pleasing mentality because we never want to be rude yeah. to anybody. We never want to tell somebody what we think. And so we spend a lot of time people-pleasing and being, as Philippe would say, like insincere because we don't want yes. to offend anybody. But like in France, if you went into a dress shop, this is a true story, by the way, I go into this dress shop and I see this really cute dress and I'm like, yeah. oh, I love that. And the woman says to me in French, oh yeah, that's great for you, but you don't have the chest for that dress. Let me point you to something that's better. My husband thinks this is the funniest thing. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. Whereas in the United States, we would say, oh yeah, that dress is going to be great on you. We right. wouldn't even like, because you want to just close the sale. Like you probably would not be that honest. A, because that's like a weird thing to say and you probably don't want to offend yeah. somebody. But two, you, it's about making the money. Like she didn't care about losing yes. the sale because she couldn't help tell me that like, and I don't know, she's probably right. It probably wasn't the dress. Yeah. <laughs> I well, she's good else. at her job. She you know, can assess the clothing. Yeah. Job. yeah. So that's why when she says something looks great yeah. on me, I know that she's telling me the truth because she just, you know. So I think the French are very good in that way. They're very direct. And sometimes people will think that is rude. Mm. And I think that's why the French have gotten a bad rap over the years that, oh, the French are yeah. so rude. But they're just direct, yes. you know. So. And then the other thing that I think we take for granted in the United States, and the more that I travel, the more that I see that this is sort of unique to the U.S., is we're such a service-oriented mm -hmm. country because of the fact that a lot of the service businesses work for tips. Yes. So, or we're just like kind of eager to please, probably because of the capitalist nature of wanting to close a sale or make money. If you went into a restaurant and it was busy and you said, oh, could you take a table of six? Like a small restaurant is probably going to figure out a way to accommodate mm -hmm. that because that's going to be a big bill. So they would say, well, no, we're, we're busy right now, but can we get you a drink at the bar or, you know, we can serve some appetizer? Like they would kind of get to the point where you would want to stay. Yeah. Whereas in France, like we've had several situations where we've done that and they would just be like, oh, no, say public steam. Yes. You know, like you just can. And then the Americans will think, oh, that's so rude. But it's like, no, it's not possible because they're at max and they're not going to be able to give everybody good service if they start to take more than they can yes. accommodate, you know, or the Americans will like go to the next level. They'll you'll be like, no, I'm sorry. I don't have that. But you might try this. Yes. Like we'll kind of give another. But sometimes in France, it's like, no, yeah. we don't have that. Gosh, it's really nice to hear what's great about America. I have to just pause and say yes, for a minute. I know. Because we are going through a lot of changes as a country right now. So it's nice to know. hear that we yeah. have these wonderful things about us that, that you we will do. And if you move to France one day when you're older. <laughs> yes. I mean, just like silly things. Like I was in Trader Joe's at around Thanksgiving when it was totally crazy. Like the place was a madhouse. Mm. But still, there is a man there bagging my groceries and asking me if he can take me to the car to load yeah. them for me. Like in France, that would never happen. Like you're bagging your own groceries in France. 
like their checker is sitting yeah. down and they're bagging it. And if you don't, it's sort of like that I love Lucy yeah. thing. If you don't put it in yeah. your bag, like it's piling up and the people are like giving you dirty looks. And if you forget your bags, like too bad. Like it, there's not that element of like service of like, let me help yes. you for yeah, free. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So take us yeah. back to you've now, you're married, you're in America. How do you get more interested and committed to this path that you're on now where you're producing your own shows, you're entertaining yeah. with Beth, you know, take us through into that yeah. part of your life. Yes. Well, it's funny because I do believe with these career paths, when you're in it, it all feels like nothing's making yes. sense. Like you're jumping here, you're jumping there, especially your early 20s. You're like, and people will look at you like, what are you doing? Like you keep bouncing around. But when you look back on it, you're like, oh my gosh, that made perfect sense. Like I could never be doing what I'm doing now had I not done a few, yes. you know, a different like bounce around. So after working for my dad for seven years, I finally realized that like I felt like I just wanted a corporate job. Yeah. Like I wanted my little cubicle. I wanted to work yeah. for a company. I wanted the performance reviews. And my dad was like, you know, that sounds like people yeah. try to get out of that. And I go, I know, but I'm young. I'm in my 20s. I feel like I need that. So I worked for Scripps Productions, which was the production company that was producing all of this um, HGTV content, okay. Food Network content. And they asked me if I wanted a staff position for them. And I said, oh, yeah, I'd love that. So I was producing just lifestyle shows for Food Network, HGTV, DIY, Fine Living, everything from travel yeah. shows to craft shows to food shows to design shows. So I did that for a while. And then 9-11 uh, happened and they had to shut down this production arm. Like everything just sort of imploded mm -hmm. and they just didn't have the money to have like both of these two production facilities that they had. So they closed LA. And at that point, I was like, okay, I need to get involved in digital. Like I you think could see, I see it everything. Coming. I could see yeah. it coming because all the lifestyle content now was turning more reality-based. Yes. And I just was not a reality producer. I wasn't interested in it. I was more interested in the teaching part yeah. of like the cooking shows or the travel shows, like the how-to. And I saw a lot of this how-to going online. And so long story short, I worked for a few other production companies that were still doing how-to things, also in television, but also doing like digital components mm -hmm. to it. And then I finally just took the leap and did like an all digital media company. And I was doing lifestyle content for them because they had all these digital yeah. people producing for YouTube, but didn't know lifestyle. So oh, they're like, I oh, see. you come from HGTV, yeah. you know lifestyle. So it was like the perfect thing. And I think in life, when you have a new opportunity that feels familiar, so like I had this lifestyle background, it felt familiar, but it was digital, which was totally yes. new. That is the perfect combination where you can go on your strength because they're hiring yeah. you for your strength, but you're actually going to learn a new skill. Oh, that's beautiful. That I think yeah. is, yeah, that's really great. So I would always say like, take the job that gives you a new skill that gives you some familiarity where you have some authority because you won't feel so out of yes. place. And I think for me, like I didn't feel out of place, like asking the dumb questions about digital and YouTube because they were asking me the dumb questions right. about how do you shoot a cooking yeah. demo, you know? So that kind of thing. So it was, so it was good. And we, I was there for about a year and then we got a grant from YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, YouTube invested, I don't know, they say it's like $200 million in 200, in 2011. Okay. So yeah, so YouTube, YouTube invested like $200 million, they say, on the platform to get advertisers to start yeah. advertising against YouTube videos because a lot of people just thought it was like funny cat videos. Right. And they were like, no, we have, you know, lifestyle content. We have to up the content. So they started funding all of these media companies to produce content. 
And that's when my boss was like, okay, we have this funded channel. We have to do 40 hours of programming, which doesn't sound that much from a television point of view. But when you're talking about like three minute, five minute videos, it was a ton of video. And come up with content that moms are going to love. And she's like, you're a mom. Like, what a mom's going to watch on YouTube? I'm like, oh, I don't really know because I didn't really know much about Yeah. YouTube. Well, it, it, but I thought, well, I'm a little bit ahead you know, of the curve, mm-hmm. too. Aren't it, it, This time, it isn't as exploded yeah. as it has now, right? Is That's my right. understanding now of it, it. Okay. Yeah, which is why I think I was a little confused. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, what are we going to do? Like, So I just took the page from television and thinking like, okay, I think moms are always going to be interested in the cooking, yeah. the fashion, the parenting, maybe a little bit of travel, crafting. Like, I think we still need all those verticals, but the way I wanted to shoot it was different. Like, yeah. I didn't want to be in a studio. I wanted everything to be in real people's homes. I didn't want hosts. I wanted, like, real women, yeah. like women that I knew. You know, I wanted, like, the chic mom at drop-off who always looked cute. I wanted she to do the, you know, fashion yeah. things. I wanted, like, food stylists that I had known like put them on camera and talk about like great recipes they're feeding their families with. So, so that part was really fun. And we just, you know, updated all the cameras. We were shooting more with like the DSLR cameras to make it look more real, like real life, but just a little bit prettier rather than like traditional like video cameras. And so I did that for a while. And then we realized we were short on our hours. Like we had a certain amount of time that we had to do all this content. And then we were like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I think we just need to do like 30-minute shows yeah. like we used to do for TV and just like whack these hours down. And they were like, well, who are we going to get to host 30-minute shows? And I was like, well, I think we should do like entertaining because as we were putting all this content out, I realized there was this whole generation that was on YouTube that had never – didn't really know who Martha Stewart yes. was. Like had never grown up with Ina Garten. Like all these people that had inspired me, you know, these girls that were like – coming out of college, like, that's who their mom right. Like they, Right. <laughs> but they were on YouTube, and so they were looking for content on YouTube. So I said, let's just do, like, parties. Like, let's show them, like, here's the appetizer, yeah. and here's the main and the dessert, and here's how you put it all together. And my boss was like, all right, if you think that's going to whack off all this time, go ahead. So I started hosting these entertaining things, yeah. and I did, like, probably 13 to 15 of these, you know, Thanksgiving for rookies and the Mother's Day yeah. brunch and all of this like easy kind of thing. And it started to do really well. And I, I just realized like there's a whole generation of people that do not know this information yes. of how to throw a party and the timing and what goes with what. Like you're not going to serve sangria with, I don't know, you know, Asian peanut noodles. Well, I think also what's so interesting about that is how intuitive it was for you. You know, it, it was like something yeah, that... Yeah, I guess so. It, it's like all of your experience. It's your experience traveling with your dad. It's what you yeah. naturally grew up around. And and it's just how mm. you see and think about entertaining. It's very natural to you. So I imagine yeah. that that part of it must have felt fun in a way. I mean, and let's talk to us about imposter syndrome. I mean, were you in the situation where you were above and over your head? Well, it's funny. I think you start to get imposter syndrome when you start to get more successful. Yeah. Because when no one's That's really watch- watching, you're just laughing because you just think it's a hoot. And you're kind of like, okay, this is fun. Let's just see what this is like. And I had just bought a house. My husband and I just yeah. bought a house. And so I started entertaining a lot more. I started hosting the Thanksgivings and the Christmases for my family. And I was still learning. So I was still making a ton of mistakes. And I think that is the best teacher is like, oh, no, don't do this ahead of time because yes. this is what's going to happen when you do. And I realized that was going into the cooking demos and how that made it really great for people because they were like, oh. She's telling us what to do, but also more importantly, what not to do, because I was learning all along with them in some way. It was probably like five years ahead of the audience, but I was still learning. 
Um, and so I think that that really helped. And then my boss was like, wow, well, these things are doing really well. Do you want to start your own channel? And I said, yeah, you know, I'd really love yeah. to start my own channel. Let's see what this looks like. And it was part of my job. So I would have the crew come to my house. They would shoot everything. They would edit it all. And all I had to do was come up with the recipes. Mm -hmm. I was like the YouTube trust fund baby. I didn't have to have pay, pay for any yes. of it. I just got to do all the fun part, yeah. you know, which was not the real world. It's not like how YouTube typically works. And then a few years down the road, my boss was like, well, this is great. Uh, and I had gotten about 50,000 subscribers okay. at this point. And he said, but, you know, we can't really afford to do this. We need you to work on some other things, but you can have the channel. We'll just stay a minority partner if you want to continue with it. And so I was like, oh, now I'm going to have to learn how to like shoot all this myself. Yeah. I'm going to have to edit it all myself. Like, how am I going to do this? And I think that was just a real crossroad. I could have just said, oh, forget this. Yeah. Or I could have done what I did, which is like, oh, I've already sunk all this time and I've already had a certain amount of success. I should probably keep going. And do you feel yeah. in that moment, was the keep going out of the history and the commitment to it that you had thus far earned, like your hard earned lessons? Or was the keep going also because you had a vision for what you could contribute? Yeah, I think it was yeah. both, really. I think it was like, oh, I've put all this time and effort into it. I should probably keep going. But then I remember driving down the freeway one day and thinking like, this maybe is what I'm supposed to yeah. do. Like maybe I'm actually supposed to keep going because maybe in success, this replaces this nine to five grind yeah. that's just about killing me. Yeah. <laughs> because... I had two small kids at home. You know, I had like a one-year-old and a four-year-old. I was commuting two hours a day. And I just kept thinking like, what does this look like when they're teenagers? And I really want to be around for yeah. that. It's funny. Like, I think a lot of people think, oh, you want to be around when your kids are young and, you know, but I don't know. I think that they need you then, but I think they need you more when they, the, the middle school yeah. hits yeah. and the high school hits. When like, as a mom, I want to be the one navigating through, you know, the mean girl stuff and the, what does this mean? Or somebody called me that, what does that mean? And the social media and all of that, like that just seems trickier yes. to farm off to like a babysitter as opposed to the babysitter when they're little, sure. cooking them dinner, giving the bat, like that just seemed easier. I think So I just kept thinking like, I want to be a stay-at-home mom when I'm, when yeah. they're older. I think part of the experience of motherhood in that way is being around in the unexpected times when your kids are older, to not miss when they're ready to share. You know, when they're younger, they're full of story and observation. Totally. And, yes. and you can control bedtime and you can kind of facilitate an activity that's going to put them at ease. And then maybe, you know, you're playing and yeah. building a memory. And all of that goes out the window when they're real adult, you know, young adults. And they have an agenda yeah. of their own. And it's really important for them to have friends and define themselves and define themselves differently from you. Just like you going to yep. say to your dad, your experiential dad, I really need the nine to five job. That totally makes me <laughs> smile. Isn't that like parenting? I'm, I'm listening to stories about your dad thinking, how cool to have a parent like that. And you say to him, actually, dad, I want to go get behind a desk. <laughs> I need my cubicle. I need it's more so structure. Classic. And he, right. it's so classic, but then it does take the long way around because now I think it was because he lived this creative life yeah. that he normalized yes, it. So that when sure. I, he actually gave me the courage to say, you know what? I don't need this yes. job. Like if I can figure this out, I actually can also live the creative life because I saw him yes. do it, you know? Yeah. I think that's the thing too. Which There's so much in our 
lives, whether it's from our childhood homes, our parents, or our friends, you know, our people yeah. around us, where we absorb the the way that they're living, not what they tell us to do, just yes. the way that they're living. Because if you see somebody living Ooh. in a way that you haven't figured out yet, you haven't cracked the code how to live that mm-hmm. way, but it seems attractive to you, it feels like something that you want to experience, that person is is hope embodied. It's like, well, I can do it if they totally. can do it. Well, it's that old adage, if you can see it, you yeah. can be it, you know? And I, I'm very conscious of that with my daughters because especially with production and photography, it's always been a very, and video production has been like very male dominated. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when they would see these crews show up, it was all a bunch of guys, yeah. you know, that would show up with the cameras and the thing. And so when they heard that I was going to have to try to figure this out myself, they were like, you're, you're going to do that? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do yeah. that. It didn't look very good in the beginning, yeah. but like I did it. And I think they've just seen my whole trajectory of like ups and downs. And now they come home and I've got the three cameras, I've got the lights and recording this and I'm editing and they've seen me do all of that. Like, I think it's a very powerful model for like, go do something you want to do that might seem scary that you have no idea how to do it, but everything at some point is learnable. Like if there's a will, there's a way. And if you really want to do it, especially in today's world, everything's online. Like I've watched YouTube videos. I've, you know, done seminars. I've done like all of these things to learn because- it's just so much better if you know how to do it than being yes, somebody. Yes, absolutely. So what yeah. role do you feel like that determination or let's call it intention has played in your career path? I think it's very valuable to see the promised land. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And not worry about how you're going to get there. Like I think when I was sort of in this nine to five grind and my husband, I saw him working from home and he would have these, we would have these, you know, Sunday morning chats over coffee, looking at these beautiful French real estate yeah. magazines, dreaming about, wouldn't it be great if we could live, live six months there and six months here? And the part of your brain that wants to figure it all out automatically shuts that idea down because yeah. they're like, how am I going to do that? No, and I can't, and we can't do that. And then you just sort of get into this spiral downward of like despair and, oh, this is going to work. But I think if you can keep your eye on the prize and be like, yeah, how could we do that? Then you just start to back it up and you start to say, okay, if I got 50,000 subscribers on this YouTube channel, in another year, could I get 100? And if I keep adding that every year, what does that look like 10 years from now? You know, like you have to be willing, I think, to do the long, hard, deep work if you want to get to the promised land, because the promised land, and this is an expression that I am very fond of saying, which is, if trailblazing was easy, the road would be paved. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) It's not. You got to bushwhack your way. And so if you want something bad enough and it's something that's new to you that you don't feel like you have the confidence to do it, don't think you have to do it all overnight. Like you're going to do a little part of it every day. And if if, if you can rest your head on the pillow at night and think, I learned how to do X and that's going to help me with Y, then you're moving yourself forward. You know, I think that's so important yeah. for young people to hear too, and for us to reveal that and and really instill that belief or talk about that belief or that reality with the children and young adults that are around us now, because there's this yeah. it's misleading when you go onto social media and you see an entrepreneur or a, know. you know a small business, like all of a sudden they're doing really well or you know this 
person's book is a bestseller, but there were three other self-published books before that book hit the shelf (laughs) and became the best. You know, and so I think with social media and these quick sound bites and little videos and promotional tools and marketing things that we do, it's really easy to get the idea that it happened faster than it really happened. Yeah. And in our culture where everything is like door dash it, record it, we can watch it when we want it. We don't have to sit through a commercial. Amazon Prime. We don't have to walk across Mm. the room to reference an encyclopedia. We can just ask our smartphone, you know, whatever information we need to know. (laughs) Yes. I mean, we live in this life of immediacy and we think that everything should be immediate, applied even to our own personal growth, our own professional growth. And I think a lot of people also think success looks like this, like it looks like a a steady incline when it doesn't. It looks more like this. It looks like one of those like EKG things where you're going up and down and up and down. Yeah, that says you're alive. And, you know, that says, exactly. Yeah, it's a good metaphor, you know, because it's true. Like it does not happen overnight. And sometimes you have like failures and setbacks, but you learn something valuable. And so that when you come back to it, it's stronger in a way, or it helps yeah. you do something that you didn't know how to do before. So, so all those failures, like they're not for naught, like they're not useless time. Like there's no such thing as wasted time or wasted experience if you've learned something yeah. from it. And it might just be, don't trust a startup who says they're going to do something yes. for you. Like that was a big thing for me. I had a subscription box for a few years and it was a startup. And I had like 800 people signed up for mm-hmm. this thing every month. I was putting myself out there promoting it. And then they just went out of business. Yeah. And I had like 800 people left on the line. And, and at the time, it just felt like a huge failure. But when I look at it now, I realize that like I shouldn't have trust a company that didn't have a track record doing yeah. what they said they were going to do. And that was a startup. So now I get a lot of people pitching me on things that are startups. And I was like, great. Circle back in a year. I'd love yeah. to see, you know, how it's how it's gone and not saying yes too quickly yeah. to things. Do you, you know? have a method yeah. for tracking those lessons or is it more just your own reflection? Do you do you share with Philippe or do you have another colleague or partner or do you just feel like you naturally retain what you've learned? Yeah. I think I think naturally yeah, through the experience. Yeah. I think through the experience. And then I think you get that sort of that you get that sort of post-traumatic stress when something comes yes. into your life that feels very similar and you're like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going down that right, road. Right, right. Your body <laughs> You know, knows. it's sort of like the burn. Yeah. Your body knows that feeling of being burned once that you're like, no, yeah. this isn't, this doesn't feel yeah. right. And I think that also is a great thing that comes with age is knowing to listen more to when things don't feel right. Yeah. I think the younger we are, the more apt we want to please people. We want opportunity. We're willing to take bigger risks and swing bigger. And sometimes that's good, but sometimes a little reflection. And sometimes it's as simple as, you know what? Let me take a beat. Can I get back to you tomorrow on that? Or let me just think about it. Like, I think that is something I've learned to do in my older years where my, the younger me was not saying that much. It was more like jumping into things like, oh, well, well I love the way you frame that because it's actually a form of intelligence. It, it's a, fo- it, it's like it's a, a, a wiser, thing. you know, it's, I think yeah. there's so much, at least in my line of work, there's so many barriers to getting started because of age, you know, where you think, well, I, yeah. I didn't, I'm doing a career pivot and I have all of this experience over here in this field. And now I want to pivot and go in this field. And it's mm. terrifying. You know, and I and so it it's is. easy to get into your head about that you're not prepared, you're not ready, you don't have the 
you don't have the smarts, you're not as quick, you know, as you used to be, but how you're framing it is actually that it could be an asset to you that you have the the ability to pause and center the wisdom, the self-knowledge to say, well, I can bring this level of reflection to my Uh decision-making and save myself time. I'm making better decisions, maybe not as many quick, you know, you're not jumping in as fast, but you're certainly making very um, sound decisions based on experience. It's so true because we've been on the planet longer. So we have all this life experience that actually helps us. And, you know, yeah, I did this later in life. Like I was 40 when I decided to have this YouTube channel in a, like, industry that's very young. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so like true. I was doing it when all it was was like these, you know, makeup beauty gurus in their 20s and 19, 18 year old girls doing these makeup tutorials. And then here I come along this 40 year old mom like, oh, I'm going to share some recipes. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that I learned, you know, I mean, but the thing I mean, that I learned yeah. about it is like, I thought I was sharing recipes to other moms. But like at that time, there weren't a lot of moms on the platform at my age. But what I didn't realize is it was appealing to this younger generation yeah. that saw me as like a friendly aunt yeah. or the mom they didn't a have. Cool older you know, sister. And I would get these, yeah. the cool older sister of like who've gone before. And that was something I totally didn't anticipate. Yeah. So sometimes like if you talk yourself out of something because you think you're too old for it, you don't know what that age is going to actually reflect back to someone yes. else that's going to be seen as an asset. Yes. And I think that's, you know, you don't know until you yeah. try. It's that old adage, like if you don't, Try, you've already right. failed, so you might as well try. Right. <laughs> Will you talk to yeah. us about the the upside and the downside of making something you love, whether that's a hobby, yeah. whether you whether someone listening is thinking a hobby or sometimes the word passion comes to people's mind, like yeah. how do you make a passion your full-time thing? And Boyd and I have talked about this. You know, I'm coming off of episode one where I talked to Boyd about music and creativity And he has chosen to do music for fun in so many ways in his life. And he also does it professionally. And that's the same, my same, um, I have the same relationship with writing. Like I would be writing anyway. um, And I do it professionally. We both have the Mm -hmm. stance that you can do that. I know you have the stance that you can do that because you're doing it. But tell me more about your experience coming to that. And if you have... For someone listening who's struggling with that, like, do I want to make my hobby yeah. slash passion my real thing? I know. It's really hard. And you do get burnt out from the passion yeah. if you're working too much at it. I think like in my brain, it's sort of like two different sides of me. It's like if I am cooking so much because I'm testing recipes, I'm testing recipes all the time and I'm cooking for work, it feels like cooking for expertise, like making sure that I'm cooking in a way that people can follow the recipe that I've taken account to every little step. And sometimes I'll be cooking and developing recipes that I'll then feed my family. It's like, oh, I have to test this recipe. I might just, you know, but that's me being expert, Beth. And it's not being like tourist. Like sometimes you need to be a tourist, meaning like pick up someone else's recipe from a cookbook and make that for fun or go eat out at a restaurant or travel or go to a farmer's market. Not because I'm looking for ingredients to test a recipe for spring, but because I just want to see what lights me up yeah. that I want to play with, but not in not for an end result, yes. just for the pleasure of yes. it. So I think like if you do make your passion your business, it's important not to lose the passion yeah. part of it, or you'll start to resent the passion because it'll take yeah, over the business. Like sure. it'll it'll sort of you'll sort of lose the passion part, and 
when I feel like I'm doing too much and I'm getting burnt out, I just need to go cook for fun or go to a restaurant and be inspired or travel, you know, to make sure that you're being that tourist in whatever the passion is. So if it's like fashion styling, if you're doing that and you're doing it for a business, go shopping just for yourself, not for a client. Like go look through, you know, magazines or things that just reconnect you with the passion as a fun pastime and not as a work thing that needs to get done. Yeah. Will you tell us about the cookbook deal? And was that something that is like a bucket list thing? Was that a dream of yours? I know this is on the horizon. So I think, is it okay that I'm asking? Yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's a good deal. Um, It's something I always wanted to do, but something I was always really afraid of because it is so much work that I just kept thinking, how am I going to do this with everything else that I'm already doing? And I, years ago, found an agent who said, well, let me see a proposal. So a lot of cookbooks, you have to have a proposal. And that's a whole other lot of work. And I think that the agents do it to see like, if she can put together a proposal, which is a ton of work, then she can actually do yeah. a book, which is a ton of work. So it's kind of like that first like little entry point that I sort of want to see. If you yeah. can so I put this 75 page proposal. I worked on it for months. I tested a bunch of recipes and I submitted it to her and she says, okay, great. And then the pandemic hit. It was like, I submitted it in yeah. February and the pandemic oh, hit shit. in March. Yeah. And she's like, this is not the time to shop a proposal. So we just sat on it. And then, you know, we had like three crazy years. And I really was like, there's no way I can even think about this because I was learning the photography and learning the editing and like doing all of this stuff to keep my business afloat because I didn't have the crew anymore that I just sort of forgot about it. And then I think the idea wasn't right. And the agent was sort of like, mm, I don't really think this is the idea. So then I was like, you know what? I love this idea. I want to do it. I just think I'm going to look into self-publishing. Yeah. So I went down that road. And then I came out thinking, you know what, if I'm going to work this hard, I want a really great publisher that's going to make yes. a really great book. I don't want to do something that's self-published that's going to look not yeah. great. I get that. Well, I just it's, wasn't it's a personal like, decision you know, for people, you know, who are putting or, yeah. that who are pursuing book projects. And I think it sounds like for your particular project, having a publisher is a good match. It was a good match. And I think because there's so much photography yeah. involved in it, and I just thought this does not this isn't something I want to try to do myself. So then I did another proposal, yeah. a totally different idea, and sent it to the public, to the agent. And she was like, I love this idea. This is great. And then we shopped it around. And then there was a publisher that was interested. And I was in France at the time. And I did like a Skype with this editor. And I just loved her. Yes. I, just, I knew she got what I wanted to do. She understood me, which is important, where I was coming from. She understood the audience. And yeah, she greenlit it. And isn't that interesting, the timing of things? You know, you mentioned earlier the depth of knowledge. You know, having those three years and really grappling with your idea and going deeper into it and testing recipes and understanding the the particular angle that you're going to have or how you're going to get into it. You know, I think it's, I get frustrated with time. It's one of my big, I feel like I'm in a wrestling match with time sometimes. But when I can surrender and trust that, the timing all unfolds in a way that invites you into this depth of understanding and connection to whatever it is you're offering, that it's really beautifully timed if you can just trust it. It, it is. And I think I'm a different person now. Of like course, I've matured yes. and grown in the craft to know that like the book that I'm doing, which the title, it's sort of a working title, but hopefully it'll be something similar, which is Entertaining 101 
101 recipes that everybody should know how to make. Oh gosh, can I like, have a pre-copy I don't think I, of that book? Yeah. <laughs> That's me, <laughs> yes, Beth. Of course. You need to do an intervention. Yes, I am 101. Exactly. <laughs> Well, that's what I, that's where my heart really is yes. with all of this. And it always has been is the beginner yeah. because that was me, you know, newly married, got the stuff on my bridal registry, didn't know what to do with it, wanted to have nice parties, yeah. but needed it to be easy. And I just, my heart always goes out to the beginner because I think that food and cooking for people and having these rituals and it's just adds so much to your life yeah. that I just thought I wanted my first book to really target that group of people because I think once you, host your first Thanksgiving and it's a success, it does turn you into a cook for life. Yeah. It's sort of that entry point. It's either the Thanksgiving, the Christmas, a baby shower for a friend. There's there's always this one point where you're like, well, that wasn't so bad. Yes. And when you see how everybody reacts and they're so excited and, you know, they they appreciate it, it just it just makes you feel that it's just that sincerest form of yes. love when you cook for somebody. Yeah. And I think that's what keeps you doing yes. it, you know. I'm curious about that heart that you just described, the sincerity, the intention that you bring yeah. together. Why, it's so clear why cooking and gathering and entertaining matters to you. And it's so clear when we've all experienced a really intentional gathering, why it matters to all of us. You know, it's so special. Yeah. Talk to us and the listener who has a different um, circumstance this year. You know, you and I are having this conversation around yeah. the holidays. I have people who I know are listening whose parents have sold their the home that they've lived in for 30 years because they've had to downsize or move into a different type of living situation. I know people are listening are, who are separated or divorced for the first time. Yeah. I know many people have lost some a loved one this year who would be at yep. the table. And you know, in, in your um, experience, personal experience, but also I know you have this community around you, this very devoted group who have really interacted with your recipes and interacted with the way that you're guiding us to entertain. What can we do to, you know, speak to that or honor the the change yeah. this year when it is a different type of gathering? I know. Well, I think as humans, we love ritual. Yeah. We love tradition. And I think the holidays become even more, even more meaningful the more traditions we put into them. But the hard part is, is when we lose somebody, and I lost my brother two years ago, mm -hmm. my younger brother, who was 48, died of a heart attack suddenly, had two children that he left behind, was always so much a part of our holidays, that it was hard. Yeah. Like that first holiday of such a huge change is so hard that I think... All those traditions that we spent years doing, when they're not there, it feels even worse because you feel the loss even yeah. more. That I think the thing to do is to come up with new traditions. Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard to try to do the same traditions and feel the loss of that person so immensely, yes. like because it's such a gaping yeah. hole. So, and it was something that I really appreciated about my sister in law. She used to live in LA, but she said, you know what? I cannot come to LA for Christmas because that was the Christmas that Joe and I had, my brother, like yeah. we would, those were our Christmases. And now that he's not here and she's moved to Hawaii, she's like, my, our Christmases are going to be different. They're going to be at the beach in Hawaii. And so she's sort of rebuilding her life in a new way, not getting rid of tradition, but making new traditions. Yeah. And to me, that felt very healthy. Yeah. And so for us, my brother would come over in the morning on Christmas morning and we would have, you know, him and his wife, play with the girls, we'd do a big breakfast, and then we'd have a Christmas dinner. Mm -hmm. But he's not here anymore. So instead, like we started 
doing the Christmas thing earlier. It's more of a Christmas lunch and it feels different. And, you know, I think a great way to honor people who've passed is to cook their favorite foods. Mm. And it just makes them feel like they have a seat at the table. So my brother loved cannolis. And so every Easter, he's not here anymore, but I always make cannolis for dessert. And it's something we all laugh about, like, oh, Joe would eat this whole platter. He'd love them. And it just feels like there's a part of them that's there, you know? Oh, I love that. And I think it just speaks to the nature of life, which is it's constantly changing. And it's really hard when we when we approach the holidays because the holidays are all about making things the same. We always do this. We always watch Hallmark with our hot yeah. cocoa. We always do Christmas breakfast together, you know, because it's the thing that kind of keeps us excited for the holidays. But that doesn't mean that the we always do X can't change. Yeah. Like it can be a new X. Yes. <laughs> you yes. can still always say you're going to do it, but like be open to doing it differently because... I think that there's a lot of beauty in that. And there can be a lot of new traditions that you might like even better because you're a different person with change. Absolutely. You know, then that might just speak to your, who you are at that point. Will you just give us some words of guidance and inspiration for the beginners on the line, like me? (laughs) (laughs) When you go to entertain and you are, I do not consider myself a gifted entertainer. I do consider myself an intentional gatherer. I love having an intention, yeah. but I mean, I have women around me and men. I mean, even Boyd has this level of entertaining that he's so tuned mm-hmm. into details and he loves cooking and he loves having a signature cocktail. So it's not a man woman thing. It's just an individual person thing. Yeah. What is one of the things that you feel like is a low hanging fruit that really adds meaning mm-hmm. and purpose and heart to a gathering? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I would say really consider the setting and the surrounding. You know, I think everybody, it's that old adage, you know, people won't remember what you serve them, but they'll remember how you made them feel, you know? So if you decide you want to have an outdoor barbecue, like put a tablecloth on, get some flowers, like create some candlelight, like create a mood. I think people, when they come to someone's house, or if they're coming to my house, I always want them to feel they've been transported in a way, like where, you know, where they can really relax. Because I think the real basic part of entertaining is to make people feel comfortable. And if they arrive and it's hot and there's nothing to drink or they don't know where to sit, they don't know where to put their purse, they're automatically going to feel a little uncomfortable. And then they're not going to be talking with the other guests. If you're stuck in the kitchen, they don't feel comfortable. So like, What is the environment that is going to be so conducive to putting somebody at ease and feeling relaxed, then (laughs) you're halfway there. I love that. Yeah. While you were talking, I had the memory. My mom is, I do consider my mom a masterful entertainer and she would always Mm -hmm. incorporate some sort of foliage or nature from our own yard. Yeah. I loved that. Like I have memories of, of, um, she would have the little shiny magnolia leaf. And I would get, do you yes. remember um, liquid paper, the white, and, oh, yeah. and paint the people's names with the little brush? Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> Growing up. I love having a, a name, you know, having a table setting, I think yes. is so, she would always do that. I'm a big believer in yeah. that because if you're over, I would say if you're over six people, it just, again, makes people feel yeah. comfortable. There's none of that awkward musical chairs that happens and people don't know where to sit. And then if you leave it up to chance, 
Like you get what you deserve because at that point, yeah, <laughs> if you don't have people that are going to speak well and you have like two introverts uh, together and yeah. they can't really keep the conversation going, like that, that just has to be thought out. Yeah. Like I like to put introverts next to extroverts with people who are more engaging in the center of the table rather the ends of the table yeah. so that they're not like, you know, so that everybody is sort of integrated. And I think if you think that through, everybody's just going to have a better yes. time. Yeah. You know? I love it. Yeah. When will the cookbook come out? Summer 2025. Oh, we have a we have a little bit of a wait. <laughs> we have a little bit. Oh, yes. And luckily, because I'm still like in the beginning stages of testing the recipes yes. and then we'll photograph everything in May. And then it takes a full year just to produce yes. it, to print it. Once my job is done, you know, then there's like the production part yeah. of it. So it does, it takes, it takes well, two years. Well, you're learning yeah. and you're going to... You're going to save all of this knowledge yeah. if you decide to do a second cookbook. <laughs> You're going to Wait, apply all of sure. your lessons. <laughs> oh, one thing that might be helpful for people, mm-hmm. there's always the naysayers, especially when you are doing something new, mm-hmm. I think. I think when you do something new, especially later in life, there will always be someone who will want to talk you out of yeah. it. <laughs> and I think they do it from a place of they're trying to be helpful, they're, they're looking out for your best interest. But nobody knows your best interest better than you, yeah. you know. And if there is a burning desire to go out and do something, the the vision that I have always had in my mind is that scene from The Wizard of Oz when Glinda, the good, is it Glinda or Glinda? Yeah. Glinda, the yes. good witch, is there with Dorothy and the wicked witch of the East comes and she's like, I'm going to put a hex yeah. on you or whatever she says. And Glinda says, be gone. You have no power here. And that is the mental image that I always have when people are saying, you can't go write a cookbook. You can't go do your YouTube channel. You can't. It's like, be gone. You have no power. So like, if you don't let people, if you don't give people the power to change your mind, you can just block them out. Like, I just think having that singular focus of this is what I want to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And to keep your eye on the prize, you just... Whatever the image is to to allow you to not listen to those people because they don't know what's inside your heart yes. or what you're actually capable of. Like you're the only person who knows what you're actually capable yeah. of. And then it's your job to prove them yes. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> because success is the best revenge. Yes. And I, what I love that you said about that is that it's in your heart. I know that reconnecting yeah. with something that makes your heart sing is something that you stand mm-hmm. for. You know, I, th- I think that's yeah. really your life experience and you know, how you've chosen to spend your time, what you've given your attention to. It's all around this Mm -hmm. very aligned, you know, heart-based joy. You know, you really enjoy what you do. And I think that can be so Mm -hmm. centering for people. And that can be the foundation upon which the confidence is built. It's like, does this feel good? Yes. You know, is this natural to me? Is this who I am? Is this what I would be doing anyway? And I think your life reflects that. that. Well, and I think that's where the vulnerability comes in. Right. Because it's so heart-centered, it's so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So it's like, this thing means so much to me, and I'm going to now put myself out there and see if other people connect with it. The fear is, is if they don't, you've given so much of yourself, you've revealed so much. Yeah. And I do that a lot with the vlogs, where it's like, okay, this is how I entertain. These are the things that I love about my garden or the things that I love about our trips to France. Like, all of that is so personal. Yeah. That if it's rejected in any way, it it does sting. But uh, but the percentage of people who don't connect with that, with the percentage of people who do, that you're actually seeing you're improving people's lives by giving them this advice or showing them how to do this for themselves, that 
is so much more yes. worth any other any of the yes. sting. So you know, it goes back to the one yeah. listener, the one listener, the one the one person cooking your recipe, the one person reading your blog. Yeah. The, I always remind myself it's not yeah. for everybody. It's for the one person no. who hears something that feels less alone. It is. It is. And that's where I think when you can align passion with purpose and service, that's like the, the holy grail because you're showing something that you love, not to just to show it and then that becomes more of an ego play, but as a way to like be of service to other people that that is then going to help them. That's when your passion gives purpose. Yes. And I think when you have purpose in your life, there's meaning. Yeah. And when you have meaning, you feel more accomplished. And then I think that's the best way to get away from the imposter syndrome because you know you're helping yes. people. Yes. And people who are helping people are not imposters because there's actually a result at the yeah. end of it. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. And authenticity, you know, like being you uh, yeah. is the gift. And I, I feel right. that from what you put into the world. I'm so glad that you've shared so much of how you've built that with us and how you approach it, because yeah. that's my hope. I mean, it's personally, selfishly, I love talking about that. And I'm so grateful for this time with you. But I also feel like for somebody listening, you know, to just have a representation of that in the world of someone being authentic and bringing their heart to something that they love is kind of an aspiration for all of us. Oh, well, thanks, yeah. Kate. Well, I, you're, I'm very inspired by what you do, too. So it's Thank a mutual you. admiration it society. Is. Yes. <laughs> Well, a few things have stuck with me since my conversation with Beth. The first being the idea that you'll figure it out and you'll learn from your mistakes. Beth is absolutely a learn through experience person and I so appreciate that about her. She embodies openness and creativity and the stick to itness we need in order to apply the lessons learned. It's really hard to stay open and vulnerable. And I think it's really hard to believe that you're gonna figure it out. Beth makes me feel like I can. I've thought about the importance of work ethic too and how we must hold the promise of our vision and not get caught in the weeds of how it's going to all play out. And that vision can apply to any area of your life. Beth is in it for the long haul, all of it. And talking to her about commitment definitely reconnected me to my own long game. And finally, this conversation definitely helped me to soften around my insecurity in the kitchen and entertaining. I loved when Beth called cooking and intentionally gathering the sincerest form of love. It's not about being perfect. It's about inviting your people in with purpose and authenticity. And I can do that. We can all do that. Beth, thank you for sharing so generously with us. And thank you for making a home where passion, purpose, and service come together and letting us meet you there. Thanks to each of you for being here and for listening. I'm so grateful we get to share life in this way. As always, full show notes are available at pagenolan.com forward slash podcast. There you will find a full summary of the episode, timestamps and key takeaways and any resources mentioned in our conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love if you would leave me a rating and a review. You can do that by visiting pagenolan.com forward slash love. Your reviews really do help people to discover the show. And if you know someone specifically who would enjoy this episode, I'm so grateful to have you all share. I'll meet you there with your friends. Lastly, if you have any questions or comments, or if you would like to share any feedback with me, please email to meetmethere at pagenolan.com. I would love to hear from you. Thank you to the team that makes this show possible. Podcast production and marketing by North Node Podcast Network. Music by Boyd McDonald. Cover photography by Innes Casey. 
Okay, y'all, that's it for now. I'll meet you there again soon. <laughs>